Thank you, uh, Mike and uh, the team for leading us in worship. Uh, we're going to continue in worship this morning by reading the scripture. And of course, all scripture is worship. As we read it, it worships God. But uh, this morning, we're reading uh, Revelation chapter 7, which is a story of people who are worshiping God. So we're worshiping God as we read about people worshiping God. So on the screen, uh, there'll be a part for you to be uh, participants. So as you read through this um, story in the Revelation chapter 7, uh, um, there's a part where it says the multitude or the people um, spoke, and that will be your cue to speak what's on the screen. It'll happen twice in this passage, and I'll uh, point at you so you know when your cue is. Um, <clears throat> so Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Skipping down to verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before their lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May the Lord bless his word. All right, I get to dismiss the young kids in the room. So if you're in elementary school, there is a class 
that will be for you with great volunteers. And if you're in junior high, there's also a class with a great volunteer. Uh, that'd be Matt. And, and you can go off to that class. Um, he might give you donuts. Or not. I will see. But the rest of you in for a treat too, okay? It's not donuts. But um, you will know by now, I think, if you've been around these parts, we're in the book of Revelation here at Varsity Bible Church. And if you're new to us this morning, uh, whether you're online or whether you're in the room and you're new, uh, we're in the book of Revelation. And you might have, there'll be a little catch-up you'll need to do. Um, What we're trying to immerse ourselves in as a community is the language and the imagery and the symbols of Revelation. Um, And allow that language to enlarge our imaginations, okay, to help us... um, not only think better, but, but to dream better and to imagine better. Uh, as John, the original writer, as he receives this revelation from Jesus to encourage the early church, this now echoes out to us, how do these words encourage us? Now, last week I touched very briefly on um, the Lamb who takes the scroll, something like this perhaps, but symbolized, uh, with seven seals and breaks the seals of the scroll, which gives way to the seven trumpets, which gives way to the seven bowls and these, these warning judgments from God. But what I didn't unpack last week, we'll talk very briefly about this week, is the pattern. So particularly if you look at the breaking of the seven seals and the sounding of the seven trumpets, it follows the exact same pattern. What you get is the first six in quick succession. Uh, the, first, the breaking of the first six seals, and then there's a what commentators will call an interlude, what I will call a pause. There's a pause in the action, and then the seventh seal is broken. And the trumpets follow the same pattern. There's six trumpets that are sounded in quick succession, then there's an interlude or a pause in the action, and then the seventh trumpet is sounded. And John is inviting us using sort of literary forms to just pay attention to the pauses. What is going on? So if we look at the seven seals, um, they get broken in quick, the first six in quick succession. What you get is a um, a litany of uh, judgments, warning judgments from God. Uh, Things like uh, conquest and war and famine and death and plague, uh, which would have been a tragically ordinary day for first century Christians, right? In living in the Roman Empire, they would have been very familiar with conquest and war and famine and shortages of food and plagues they couldn't understand and that were killing people around them. But also, I think you'll notice it's kind of a tragically ordinary day in our world as well. Conquest, war, famine, death, and plague. It doesn't sound that different than the place we live. The fifth seal gets open and it's these martyrs, these people who have followed the Lamb. They're crying out for justice. They've been killed by giving witness to the Lamb and they're crying out for justice and they're told to just wait a little bit longer. And then the sixth seal is broken and uh, we're told there's a big earthquake and the sun turns black and stars fall out of the sky. These are typical apocalyptic images, okay? Apocalypse is a type of writing, And these are images that are found throughout apocalyptic writing, okay? If you read other types of writing in this this style, you'll see these images. They're really images of like creations falling apart, things are coming undone. 
And right at the end of chapter 6, after the sixth seal is broken, um, the people say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? And so we get this imagery where these judgments are sort of beginning to unfold of war and famine and conquest and plague and earthquakes and creations falling apart and people just, their response to that is, we, we are overwhelmed. Who can possibly stand? Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Perhaps that has been a feeling that you have experienced in the last 18 months of being overwhelmed as things around you come undone. The way of living that you are so used to ceases to exist almost overnight. Okay, and the struggles and the pressures the pandemic brings, for some of you very literally, as you've been sick or people you know have been sick or people you know have died. Okay, wars uh, are happening in our world still today. Um, you know, you're familiar with the, with the whole situation in Afghanistan, perhaps, uh, the Sudan, some of these places in the world. Uh, there's famine still going on. Uh, these are sort of the larger things going on in the world, but then there's pressures much closer to home. Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you ever cry out and go, like, I can't stand it anymore? Do you ever feel like that? Maybe you cry out with those exact words. Maybe you just cry. You are just so overwhelmed. Who can possibly stand? Chapter 7, friends, is for you. It is good news. It answers the question, who can stand? And it turns out who can stand are the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel who have been sealed by the mark of God. The angel cries out, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until... So there is a sense, remember the chronology of, I've argued at least, the chronology of Revelation isn't, you know, chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and then chapter 3 and then chapter 4. Things move around. There is an argument that chapter 7 actually predates the breaking of the seals, like it happens before, because he says, don't do any of this until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Now, Let's get into the symbolism and the imagery of Revelation, right? Let's pay attention to this image, okay? It's a seal, a sign of protection. We know it's a sign of protection that they're sealed with because if you move over to chapter 9, uh, when the angels and, and are allowed to bring some of these judgments, it says, we are told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only the people who did not have the seal." Of God on their foreheads. So the people that could be harmed are those who have not been sealed by God. Right? So the seal is a mark of protection. It's actually an image taken right out of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, where there's an angel that goes through the city and looks for people who are wearing the seal on their foreheads. It's right there in Ezekiel, chapter 9. Read it. Or it might remind you of the Exodus story and the blood on the doorposts, where the angel um, passes over the, the Israelites, those who have that blood mark on their doorposts, and the firstborn of the Egyptians is killed. All right? It's a seal of protection. It is also, however, if you 
carry on in Revelation. Chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, who we sang of this morning, standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So it's not only a sign of protection, it's a sign of belonging. Right? I've got, I don't know, 100 books. Maybe I've got more than that. Whatever. I have books in my office, and they all have my name written in them because they're my books. And <laughs> I don't want you to take them. Well, you can borrow them. By all means, I'll lend you to them. But I kind of want most of them back because they're good books. They cost some money, and I want them back. Right? I put my name in my books because they're my books. That's what's being imaged here. All right? It's an image. It's not like God has tattooed his name on your forehead. It's a symbol. It's a symbolic. You've been sealed with the name of the Lamb and his Father. It's a seal of belonging. Okay? Now, if you pull back even a little further, the, the, the um, language of being sealed in the New Testament is often associated with being sealed by the Holy Spirit. God's gift of His Spirit in our lives. Now, that doesn't come out in the Revelation text, but if you bring in Ephesians, for example, we're, taught, we're told that the Holy Spirit is God's deposit and seal in our lives. So it's possibly here an allusion to the Holy Spirit who, is a, um, who protects us and is a mark of belonging. Okay? So just hear that image. It's a really rich image. I've been arguing all through this series that numbers are to be read symbolically. So the 144,000 is a symbolic number, is what I'm arguing, not a literal number. Um, 12 is uh, used in Revelation to represent the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, uh, 12 apostles, uh, you know, and then we get into the 24 elders around the throne, which is 12 plus 12. My math is good enough to figure that out. Um, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Okay, so it's the whole people of God, 12 times 12 times a lot. Okay, so the image there is a lot of people, which is precisely what John sees. When he turns, if you listen to Murray read the chapter, when he turns, it says, I looked, and after... Oh, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Even though there is a number given, 144,000, the point is, it's bigger than you could possibly count. From every tribe, nation, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Okay, the point is, this is not an elite group. Like, I, I don't know how you've grown up reading Revelation, I, in my younger years, was surrounded by people who were like asking, like, am I part of the 144,000 or not? That misses the point altogether. It's not a literal number, I think, because when John sees the very thing he hears, what he hears is a multitude too many to count. This is uh, the promise to Abraham fulfilled, where God said that, uh, Abraham would be the father of many nations, representing the people of God. And now here they are, the many nations, standing before the throne. And they are, they are the followers who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's the, what the angel says. Who are these people? Where are they from? And, and John answers, I, I don't have a clue. You tell me. And the angel does. He says, they are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and been made white in the blood of the Lamb. 
In other words, they've deliberately aligned themselves with the lamb who was slain. The idea of wearing a robe that's been um, washed in the blood, again, image, right? So we think of that, and correctly so, as God's, we sang this, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It washes us clean. We're forgiven people. They're white robes that have been, somehow we've been washed, okay? Our sin has been forgiven. That's part of it. But think about a robe, or to use a more um, modern term, a jersey. You put on a Calgary Flames jersey, that's the team you're on. You're declaring allegiance to that team. So being, wearing robes that have been, um, that are washed in, in the blood of the Lamb is also, not only is it an act of forgiveness, it's an act of allegiance, These are people that have put their, they've kind of, you know, they've declared their allegiance to the Lamb who was slain. That's who John envisions in this multitude. They are followers. And notice that they come out of, or maybe have gone through, depending how you read that, they've gone through the Great Tribulation. Again, there is a reading of uh, Revelation that I grew up with that, had this idea that uh, people would be sort of plucked out of the earth before the Great Tribulation. If you want the technical language, pre-trib. Uh, pre-tribulation. You're sort of rescued before the tribulation. Um, it's the rapture. There is, you might be surprised to hear, in the book of Revelation, there is no rapture. Okay, that is actually drawn from scriptures in other places, uh, which, um, in my understanding, perhaps have been misappropriated. Right? I think Revelation tells us that we're going to go through hard things. Right? This interlude, this pause, is right in the middle of the breaking of the seals. Right? It's between number 6 and number 7. It's right in the middle of these difficult things that are happening in our world. And when John asks who these people are, he's told they're people who've gone through or come out of, endured, the Great Tribulation. Hey, this might not sound like good news to you, but it is honest, right? There will be times where you are going to struggle. Uh, There are times today, I'm guessing some of you are struggling. You feel overwhelmed. Who can stand? How can I possibly cope? How can I continue to put one foot in front of another? What hope do I have? Well, the hope you have is that you have been sealed, friends, by the seal of God, and God will protect you And God um, owns you. You belong to Him. That's good news. So even though we go through the tribulation, we don't go through it alone. God is with us, protecting us, walking alongside us. Okay, that's the first interlude. And I think it's tremendous news. We could probably pause here. It's probably great enough news. (laughs) Good enough news. It is good news. That God is, um, as Christians, as followers of the Lamb, we've been sealed. He protects us. We belong to Him. He walks with us. The second interlude, though, I want to bring into focus, because it also is important. It answers a slightly different question. Um, What comes into view in chapters 10 and 11, so this is now between trumpet number 6 and trumpet number 7, right? That pattern. The second pause is it brings us back to the scroll. So the seals have now all been opened, and you're like, where did the scroll go? Well, the scroll comes back into view 
in chapter 10, this angel brings the scroll to John and invites John to uh, eat it. And again, it's, it's, um, it patterns itself after the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel's given a scroll to eat. Okay, figurative, okay? He's not trying to eat paper. It's the content of the scroll is being digested. It's almost like a meditative, like you're taking it in and letting it shape you. And there's a message on this scroll, right? So in chapter 10, it says, um, the voice that I'd heard from the heavens spoke once more. Go and take the scroll that lies open. Now there's all kinds of, you just be aware, there's commentators who argue about whether it's the same scroll as the one in chapters 6 that, that, the, that the Lamb opened. But it's... I. I think it logically, it's now an open scroll, right? What just happened in the action previous is the lamb opens a scroll. So you kind of think it's probably the same scroll. That's where I'm going to land. And John is given that scroll to eat, to digest, to take in its message. And then chapter 11 is the message of the scroll, and it's a parable. Um, and I'm going to read it to you. It's, it's worth hearing. It's a bit complicated, Partially because this chapter, chapter 11, is absolutely loaded. Loaded, loaded, loaded with imagery from the Old Testament. Um, in, I'm going to read you 13 verses. And in those 13 verses, there's at least 16 allusions to, and images drawn directly from the Old Testament. Like, it's like one of those pictures, you know, where you get like a picture and another one. You've got to find, you know, 16 differences between the two. Like, ever done those with your kids? I hate those things. Okay, but uh, here's your homework, right? Go home and read chapter 11 and try and figure out all of the Old Testament imagery that John wants you to be attentive to. Uh, I'll, pi- I'll, I'll help you out a little bit this morning and point out a few, but let me give you this, let me just read to you this parable. Chapter 11, starting in at verse 1, and I'll just read 13 verses here. So, Hear God's word uh, a second time. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. And they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some uh, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, and they will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had, been, had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come on up here. 
And they were, went up to heaven on a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to the God in heaven. Now what in the world are you supposed to make of that parable? Like, how is that helpful? <laughs> that the content of the scroll that the Lamb opens is that. And you're like, what is going on? Well, let me try and um, pick out a few of the key images. There's more than I'm going to uh, point out. I'm just going to point out a few key images as we walk through the text and how they relate, or how John is relating Old Testament imagery to this. And then I'll, I'll, we'll draw it to a summary, okay? So just stick with me, right? This Second interlude uh, is, is also important. First thing you want to notice is, I, I'm going to just skip over that very first part. There are things that could be said about the measuring of the temple, but let me just talk, let me skip that for a moment and talk about the two witnesses. And again, I don't know how you've grown up reading this. I was traveling in circles in my high school and young adult years where there was conversation about who these people would be. They're going to be two literal witnesses and you know, the conversation even was like, well, it might be you. Um, and again, it misses the point. It misses the imagery and the symbolic language of Revelation. The two witnesses are identified, actually, in the text, if we pay attention. They're referred to as two olive trees and two lampstands, which isn't, you know, immediately uh, helpful, perhaps, unless you are familiar with the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4, which speaks of two olive trees and two lampstands. And you go, oh, he's drawing imagery from the book of Zechariah. But even more so, think about earlier on in the book of Revelation who the lampstands are. The lampstands refer to the church. And these two witnesses are called lampstands. They are the church. And there are two of them because in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, the faithful witness, faithful witness is always given by two people. You can't commit or convict somebody on the basis of one witness. You need a second witness. Deuteronomy 19, you can read this. These are two witnesses. They represent the church. It turns out that the 144,000, the great multitude, and the two witnesses are symbols of the same thing. The people of God, the church. Okay? So catch that. Now, if we keep going through this parable, there's a reference to Elijah and Moses, not by name, but if you uh, recall, these witnesses are given power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time of their prophesying. And you think, oh, Elijah did that. Didn't rain for three and a half years. Highly symbolic number, which comes up throughout this text, right? 42 months is three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. Uh, they're left to, their bodies are left to rot for three and a half days. Highly symbolic number that gets used again and again. He makes a reference here to Elijah, who also, uh, you know, in Elijah's day, shut up the heavens, so it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then also they have the power to turn water into blood, which is a reference to Moses. Right? These are the miracles that Moses does before Pharaoh. And what, what John is inviting us to pay attention to is these witnesses um, are in the prophetic stream of Elijah and Moses who opposed evil empires. They stood up against 
the regime of Pharaoh and Elijah against the powers in his day with prophetic witness. And notice that these prophets, these witnesses in this parable are wearing sackcloth, which is an Old Testament image of repentance. Right? They're not just being um, arrogant. They too, they are repenting themselves and they are calling people to repentance. And then notice that their lives are taken or they lay their lives down. Like Jesus, the text will say. Um, They are... uh, it says they're overpowered and killed, uh, but they also come back to life. God's Spirit breathes in. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a reference back to creation where God creates uh, Adam and Eve and breathes into them His Spirit. This happens again in the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 37 where a valley of dead people and God breathes into them and they come back to life. Here, God breathes into these two dead witnesses and they come back to life, reminding John's early readers and reminding us that the church can be beaten but not destroyed. The church will not be killed. Okay, even though the beast, and we'll say more about the beast next week, John is going to sort of unpack that image. He just makes passing references, beast out of the abyss, and you're like, who in the world is that? And why is he opposed to the church, to these two witnesses? Well, we'll unpack that next week some. But here you need to just notice that they don't stay dead. They, are, uh, they suffer, uh, they are killed, but they come back to life. They, they mirror um, Jesus, actually. And then what happens, we left with this image at the end where there's an earthquake and a tenth of the city collapses and 7,000 people die. Now, it's very easy to miss in that last verse what's going on. Um, you know, what we hear is an earthquake and a tenth of the city collapses and 7,000 people die. And we think, wow, you know, shoot, if there was an earthquake in Calgary and 7,000 people die and a tenth of downtown collapses, that's not good. And it isn't, okay? I'm going to tell you that. I lived through an earthquake where 6,000 people died. It's not good. Okay, I'll tell you that. But I think we miss, again, because we don't catch the imagery, particularly the 7,000, all right? Um... Back to Elijah. Elijah's a highly discouraged person at some point in his life, and he's crying out to God, just let me die. And God sort of whisks him away and reminds him that you're not alone, Elijah. I've kept 7,000 people for myself, a remnant. There are 7,000 people that have not bowed their knees to Baal, to this false god, to this idol. But notice here that the image gets reversed. This is really fantastic. You need to catch this. I would never have figured this out without some smart teachers. Okay, but notice what's going on here. The the image gets reversed. In Elijah's day, it's 7,000 people that are spared, and the rest are sort of judged. This image, it's 7,000 people die, and the rest are spared. God spares not just a faithful minority, but a faithless majority are spared most of the people survive so they can turn to god and be saved and what's happening in this parable you need to see it is god's incredible mercy and longing that all people would come to know him remember i if you were around a couple weeks back i quoted from ezekiel where god says i don't desire the destruction of the wicked 
but I long for all people to come to myself. That's what's happening here. For sure, some of them are judged. God will judge evil and wickedness, but in God's mercy, most of them are saved. A tenth of the city is, is destroyed, for sure, but that means nine-tenths is saved and have the option or the opportunity to turn to God, which, in this text, some of them do. And the survivors were terrified, and they gave glory to the God in heaven. All right, so those are some of the images. Now let me just stitch it together for you. Okay, and let me just quote here from the Bible Project. Okay, the warning judgments through the seals, the breaking of the seals and the trumpets, did not generate repentance. Okay, let me just read to you, I'm going to, I'll come back to the quote. In chapter 9, after the breaking of the seals and the sounding of the trumpets, um, there's this little summary verse. It's after trumpet number 6 and before this little interlude. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze, stone, and wood. The idols cannot, uh, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent from their murders, their magic arts, and their sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, a little summary statement before this second pause, that the people of God, despite God's warning judgments, saying, like, turn from your evil, wicked ways, they don't. But now here, they do. What's different? Well, here's how the Bible Project summarizes this passage. The warning judgments through the seals and the trumpets did not generate repentance. But now the Lamb's scroll reveals the strange mission of His people. God's kingdom is revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb and loving their enemies instead of killing them. It is God's mercy shown through the church. Hear that, friend. It is God's mercy shown through the church that will move the nations to repentance. Remember early on in this, actually it was an one of my introductory sermons, I said one of the questions Revelation is asking of us is what does it mean to follow the Lamb? But not only what does it mean to follow the Lamb, but what does it mean to follow the Lamb who was slain? Well, friends, what it means to follow a lamb who was slain is that I and you and we, as a church, be willing to lay our lives down for the other, for our friends, for family, for our neighbors, for strangers, foreigners, and even enemies. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends, the definition of friendship in that text, I think, is pretty encompassing. And we're called as a church to lay our lives down. The second interlude is asking the question, how, how are we supposed to live in the midst of this chaos? And the answer is you lay your life down. You give witness to the Lamb who was slain by, in a sense, clothing yourself with the same disposition, the same action, the same attitudes, the same values. I don't know what this is going to look like for you. I think this, you're going to have to think about that. But I'll tell you this. Let me just speak really candidly for a moment. 
it's not going to be easy. Okay, in my world, part of how this looks for me has been over the last dozen years um, loving foster kids. And I am a sometimes willing participant in that, if I'm honest. Because it's hard. I don't like loving people who turn around and kick you and say unkind things to you and reject you and stay up till midnight and get up at four. I don't enjoy that. Too old for that. I don't, it's not really what I want to do. I'd much rather go on vacation. That's really hard to do with some of these kids. And so, but what they've taught me, and this has been the great gift that they've taught me, is that what love looks like is me laying my life down for them. And it's not easy, and I'm often with the psalmist, and, I'm compl- and, and I am. I am complaining to God. Well, you created the universe. Surely you could help this kid sleep past three. Because it's not that much fun. It's hard. It's difficult to lay your life down at three in the morning when you'd rather be sleeping. Okay, it's not all that it means, but it's been one of those places in my life where this comes to play. And I have to think, what does sacrificial love look like? Well, it looks a bit like the foster kids in my home. And I don't know what it's going to look like for you, how it is that you're going to lay your life down for your work colleagues or for your, your friends at school or the people at school you don't like or that they don't like you. Or your neighbors or the strangers or the refugee at our door, begging, hoping, longing for a better place than the one they live in right now. What does it mean for us as a church to lay our lives down? And friends, you're really going to have to wrestle with that. I I can't answer that question categorically for all of you. Uh, What I will say, and let me just connect this and we'll wrap up. Let me connect this moment in our sermon series with our first sermon series this fall, which is developing a rule of life, if you were here for that. Um, And really, I mean, it's this little booklet and it's online and you can download it. Um, and it invites you to think about how you would spend time with Jesus and invites you intentionally how, so be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. That's what's being envisioned here in Revelation 11. Lay your life down like Jesus did. But you can only do what Jesus did if you've spent time with him and allowed his values and his life to be shaped in you because quite frankly, on my own, I'll never get there. That's not even remotely attractive to me. I don't want to do hard things. I want, I'd rather life be easier. But the gospel invites us. Jesus invites us to do hard things. To live a life of sacrificial love. But don't forget, connect this pause, interlude, with the earlier one. As you step into this world and are called to do hard things and to love sacrificially and to let your robe be, um, you know, you wear robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. As you take that posture, know that you're also marked with a seal. <laughs> you're not alone. Right? Do you see how these interludes are so important? They're so vital. And they're so interconnected. You've been sealed. You've been marked. God will protect you. He protects me too. Even though I complain to Him a lot. And I still belong to Him, as do you, as does the church. So on one hand, this is an incredibly challenging set of verses. But on another hand, it's incredibly good news 
that God invites you to live in the world like he does. He is a lamb who was slain. And will we take that posture, but know that you're not alone. You've been marked with a seal. The Holy Spirit goes with you as you seek to be his people in the world. 